is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the, well, I guess it's called the theme or the soundtrack to Shark Tank. One of the shows we love covering here on Our American Stories, and someone asked us one day, why do you do Shark Tank? Well, I always love saying back to people, why not? But there's a story behind why we do Shark Tank, and I think there's a story behind why we focus on Judge Judy. And first of all, there are real stories on Shark Tank. I mean, what's beautiful about this show is that people come on, you know who they are, and then they pitch an idea, they tell a story about a product, and then these six very wealthy people who used to not be wealthy are going to decide whether they invest in this person who's aspiring to be like those very panelists, the sharks, by ultimately growing their company. And they're asking both for the shark's capital and for the shark's knowledge. And so I think part of the reason we do this segment is because, in the end, there are some serious things going on underneath the radar of Shark Tank. And that is, I think it's the, and we all think it's the epitome of the American dream. I mean, let me tell you what you don't see. You don't see any discrimination on Shark Tank. A surfer dude can walk in with flip-flops, and he can be from who knows where. And if he's got a good idea, he's got the shark's attention. A young inner-city kid can walk in. Bad idea? Damon John, who's African-American, is saying, Hey, kid, you didn't work through it enough. Go home. And so this is what makes Shark Tank what I consider egalitarian. It's also aspirational. The people on this show don't apologize for wanting to be wealthy. They, they do, and Americans want to be wealthy. And the wealthy people on that stage used to not be wealthy. They are, and they don't apologize for their wealth. And by the way, what are they doing with their wealth? They're trying to make other people wealthy. By the way, this is the story of capitalism that is never told in colleges, in grade school. So we actually think it's a mini economics course, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And so before we dig into why we really think it's fun, and that is the star-studded cast of Shark Tank and how different all these people are and from all different walks of life, and we're going to, over the next hour, walk you through the lives of Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban. Who were these people? How did they get to be who they were? But before we do that, we want to walk you through what we love about Shark Tank, some of the pitches. Let's talk about the silly ones first. This particular pitch combined two problems and one really weird solution. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, <laughs> they love to play golf. And if you've been oh, on a golf no. course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euro Club. Uh -oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self contained receptacle. Exactly. Now, the sharks never really warmed up to this one and never really took the club by the hand, so to speak. But this guy was convinced he was on to the next revolutionary idea in golf and leisure sports and maybe even something for a fisherman, maybe a, a Europol down the road. Who knows? And next, we have a, a silly pitch. And well, let's just say this might just give Jackson Pollock a run for his money. There is an economy for stupid, and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. 9.32 of that is, is profit. And let's just say that one went straight down the toilet. Um, no money, 
Note takers. Into the litter box. Into the litter box. That one went. But let's look at a good one. John and Alex Torrey have a new startup fashion brand, and they move back into their parents' house to share a room just to make it work. I'm Jonathan Torrey, and I'm his brother, Alex Torrey, and we live in Athens, Georgia. Okay, let's try the guacamole. We come from a super tight-knit Mexican family, so it's no surprise that we have a business together and the whole family pitches in. Can I help? We've developed a unique fashion brand called Umanf. We know that clothing is a really great way to express your creativity, and we want to build a fashion brand that has a really positive social impact. Pops. Can you make sure we order some more ink? Jonathan and I put everything into Umano. We moved back home with our parents. We share a room like we did when we were seven years old. We did that willingly because we really believe that Umano has tremendous potential. And they're asking him for $150,000 for 15% of their company. We're seeking $150,000 for 15% equity in our business. Umano is fashion for good. We design men's and women's elevated fashion basics with a personalized meaning to connect people to a bigger purpose. The awesome artwork you see here is curated from some of the most amazing up-and-coming artists. Kids! Sharks, meet Jessica. She drew the skull and wants to be a teacher. How old is she? She's seven. (laughs) Wearing Umano is a badge of pride, and it's a pledge, because with every product you purchase, Umano will give a backpack full of school supplies to empower young creative minds. So always, what are the margins? What are the sales? The t-shirt is $48. Walk me how much you pay for it and then how much the gift bag Mm -hmm. costs that goes back. Retail, $48. Okay. The cost of the product, $7. The backpack and school supplies is $4. So we load up total at 11. We have a 48% margin. Plus, last year we sold $106,000. This year we're scheduled to close at $250,000. And Mr. Wonderful worried about whether this would violate child labor laws, but in the end, we got to the inner out. Robert? I see a lot of risk. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. It's embryonic. It's not me. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Robert and Mr. Wonderful were out. What about Lori, Damon, and Cuban? I'm going to give you 150000 but for 25%. I would have to offer the 150K for 33 and a third. Thank you very much for your offer. It's between Cuban and Laurie or Damon. Who in the end gets the deal? Damon, we, we really thank you for your offer. We need to be able to protect some of that equity so that we can raise more money in the future. We would love to make a deal with Oh, So we have a deal? We, we have, have a deal. deal. Done. Awesome. I can't wait to see where this goes. Oh my god, I love it. I love it. Oh my god. Through our journey, we've probably heard a hundred no's to one yes. A hundred thousand no's. So these yeses really help not only build our own confidence, but also the teams that we are on the right track. And that's what we love about Shark Tank. And when we come back, Barbara Corcoran, Lori Grenier, Mark Cuban, the whole staff, the whole cast. We're going to dig into their lives, how they got where they got. We're spending some time on Shark Tank here. Why we spend so much time on it, you'll soon find out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. (laughs) 
This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we do Shark Tank, why we spend time on it. And now you're going to find out why. You know, those sharks all started out with nothing and needed the help of other sharks, other investors, so they could grow wealth. And now they're the wealthy ones sitting in the leather chairs, and you just heard this Mexican family, these young guys moving back into their family's house to pitch these sharks so they could grow their business. What a beautiful story. That's everything you want to know about America. So let's look at the cast, because this cast is America. And it has a couple of Canadians on it. First up, Barbara Corcoran, because boy, what a life story she has. She was the second oldest of 10 kids and grew up in a lower middle class New Jersey town. Let's take a listen. So I grew up in a very little town named Edgewater, New Jersey, which if you were there in the town, it's right on the Hudson River. And we look at New York City skyline right from our house. My little bedroom with my five sisters, we all looked out the window and we saw New York City. We never went there, but we saw it. My mother raised her 10 children. She had six girls in the girls' room, four boys in the boys' room. The girls' room was pink, the boys' room was blue. And we had one bath in between, but miraculously, my mother and father produced every one of those children from their bedroom, which was the living room couch. So for romance. (laughs) They were devout Catholics. (laughs) I didn't even have to tell you that one, right? No, you didn't. And here she is talking about a moment and a man that changed her life. I was 23 working at the Fort Lee Diner. I was in charge of one whole counter, and another woman was in charge of the other counter. The night that Ramon Simone walked in, an accent, both words, Ramon Simone. I took one look at him walking in with his beautiful dark skin, his aviator shades. He had a real suit on. I had never seen a man in a suit, not in my neck of the woods. A press collar, a white press collar. I looked at him, and I knew I was going to be losing my virginity within a week. And you know what? It was weird because it wasn't like I was saving it for anybody. It's that nobody had ever asked me for it. But he walked in. Whoa! Ramon offered me a ride home. He had a big fancy car with real leather seats. I'd never sat on leather before. I thought he had sprinkled them with talcum powder. I was sliding around. Whoa! He gave me a ride home. I introduced him to my family. They hated him on sight. And all my mother said as we started dating is, I don't like this man. I can't imagine why a man 10 years older than you would be asking a young girl out. Well, within one short month, Ramon Simone announced that a good girl like me, a smart girl like me, should really be living in the big city. And he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was a block away from Bloomingdale's in New York City. I couldn't believe I was going to New York City. I announced to my mother I was leaving. I broke her heart. My last memory of her was her crying and holding on to me. And I popped into Ramon's leather seats. And off we went to New York City. And by the way, if you remember when we did our hour on Frank Sinatra, the kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right next to Edgewater, he could see New York City, but he didn't think he belonged there. And that stuck with Sinatra for a long time. Well... Next comes a real big moment in Barbara Corcoran's life, a real hard breakup and a real tough loss. And then Ramon and I decided that we would start the real estate company. He said, you'd be great at real estate sales. I quit my job as a receptionist for a development company where I was answering the phone, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, a hundred million times a day. And he gave me the wonderful thousand dollars. He took 51% of the partnership. After all, he said he was the financing partner. I was a working partner. I took 49%. 
And so for the next seven years, we built a little rental company in New York City in a sublease space, and we had 14 rental agents. I was earning more money, not much more, but more money than I had been earning as a receptionist. I felt so successful. His two girls, pardon me, his three girls, I didn't know he had children for two years, but anyway, then he had three (laughs) girls. They moved in with us. I was now living with him in sin, as my mother liked to tell her neighbors. She wouldn't talk to me until I got rid of the boyfriend. That took seven years, all right? right. But I was dumping the pasta one night into the sink, and all of a sudden, Raymond Simone walks in, and he says, you know, Barb, we have something serious to discuss. I'm going to marry your secretary. Tina? She went from Tina, the wonderful secretary, I won't even put a label on her. Okay? I just couldn't believe my ears or my eyes. I'm like, what? How's that possible? He said, take your time moving out. I took about a minute, <clears throat> grabbed a toothbrush, and walked out the door and moved in with my girlfriend, Kathy, who was living on East 79th Street in the studio, and she let me stay there until I got my feet back under me. I should say that for the first time in my life, I don't know what hit me, I guess that hit me, but I can't believe I managed it so badly. I felt like I was a nobody. I went from a somebody with a successful business to a nobody because I was turned out for a younger woman. Tina was five years younger than me. I had to admit she was prettier. She had real blonde hair. I was already highlighting. (laughs) I hated her for that. She was calm and pretty. I hated her. But I went to work every day. I wanted to fire Tina, but Ray reminded me he was the controlling partner. I couldn't do that. Tina moved into my desk in Ray's office where I used to sit, and I sat out with the salespeople. And every day I went in smiling like a puppet, but in my heart I was running around a broken heart and loss of confidence. I just thought to myself, my God, I was nothing before Ray found me. He picked me up, found me. He was my mentor. He gave me confidence. He gave me the money to start the business. Everything good that had changed my life all led to one place, which was Ramon Simone. And I thought, he's right, I'll never succeed without him. But I can't even remember what clicked in my head, maybe desperation, but one day, I just decided I'm not going to do this anymore. And I walked in, and I said to Ramon Simone, you know what, I'm ending this business, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to chop up the 14 salespeople like a football draw. You can pick the first person, I'll pick the second. We'll do it fair. If you want to move out, you can move out. If you want me to move out, no problem. You want to keep the phone number, no problem. Or I'll get a new phone number, whatever. You go first. And we went right down the line. And I would say within maybe six minutes, we ended a partnership. Boom, like that. We had $37,000 in cash. He wrote me a check for half the $37,000. And as luck would have it, it was a real estate recession we were just about to dive into. And why was it great? Because commercial space wasn't leasing well. He was on the eighth floor where my old office was. I rented the identical space on the 11th floor above him. There's a little ego in that, I'm sorry to say. How needy was I? And by Monday, this was on a Thursday, by Monday, I moved my salespeople in because in those times you could rent black desks, rent phones, bang, we're in operation, and my seven salespeople moved in, and that was the birth of the corporate group. Right before I left Ramon Simone's office that day, or I should say Ray and Tina's office that day, and by the way, you know what his real name was? It wasn't even Ramon Simone. I found out from his mother, Vicky. His real name was Ray Simon, and he wasn't from the best country, like he always told me. He was from 145th Street in Harlem. Go figure. Alrighty. Well, anyway, so right before I left the office, that's when Ray gave me the gift of a lifetime when he said to me those words that reflected in my head for the rest of my life. It still gets me going. 
you'll never succeed without me. I'm telling you, I don't believe in negative motivation. I'm a positive person like my mother. But he really knew my number. If he had said, I know you're going to be amazing, I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed in business in the tough times. But it was that scolding tattoo in my heart, you'll never succeed without me, that every time I was near death, growing my business through the ups and downs of the real estate recession, being overextended, being over leveraged, owing money, blah, 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 that same phrase got me going again. He gave me an insurance policy for success by insulting me. Thank God he did. And this is why we're not big fans of totally insulating your children or anybody from harm. This actually ended up being Regrettably, the worst and best thing that ever happened to Barbara Corcoran. And life happens that way. And here's Barbara Corcoran talking about a bias she exhibits when picking out certain contestants. And it's a bias towards people who either faced hard times or started with nothing. I'm very biased. They have a much better shot at succeeding. Why? A lot of reasons. Uh, They're more desirous. They've never had the fancy vacation, the delicious new car, the uh, the private schools, the higher education in many instances, and they aspire to it. Uh, so um, they get more satisfaction out of climbing that ladder and getting to it. Um, and uh, they've uh, seen their parents struggle uh, through life to give them whatever they've given them. They're more appreciative. They don't take things for granted. And you know what else, uh, which I should have started with? They're totally free from expectation. <laughs> Do you know how how lucky I was to never for a second ever think, I wonder what my parents think of this? <laughs> All it was was just let's see how far I could go. Yeah. I had nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. Do you know how freeing that is to take risks? So they're, they're not risk aversive. And you strive harder. And there you have it, Barbara Corcoran, just one aspect, one star on this star-studded panel. So if you haven't watched Shark Tank, now you know why, but you ain't heard nothing yet. When we come back, Damon John's story, Mark Cuban's story, Robert Hershevik's story, and many more here on Our American Stories, the story of Shark Tank and why we cover it. our American stories, we continue our story of why we like Shark Tank and why we spend time on Shark Tank. And it's because of all the stories on that set, the stories of the stars, the stories of all the people pitching their wares. And again, it's every walk of American life. And it's bankers and it's lawyers and it's surfer dudes and it's, it's black people and white people and straight people and gay people. But there's none of that. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, but you hear none of it. And it's one of the one places in America where people aren't pitching their ethnicity or their grievance. They're pitching their product. And you get no special treatment, no matter what your age, ethnicity, or anything else. The women don't get special treatment by the girl contestants. 
The boys don't get special treatment from the boys. Damon is tough on the black contestants. He is on the white ones. The whites are as tough on the white contestants as the black ones. It's just, well, it's what America is supposed to look like. A meritocracy. And it's wonderful. Let's talk about Mark Cuban. Since the age of 12, Mark has been a businessman selling garbage bags door to door. The seed was planted early on for what would eventually become long-term success. After graduating from Indiana University, where he briefly owned the most popular bar in town, Mark moved to Dallas. After a dispute with an employer who wanted him to clean instead of closing an important sale, Mark created Microsolutions, a computer consulting service. He went on to later sell Microsolutions in 1990 to CompuServe. He's worth roughly $3.4 billion. Here's Mark Cuban reflecting on his early success. When I was about 12 years old, um, and I remember asking my dad to, um, I wanted new basketball shoes because I was a basketball junkie back then. He's like, well, your shoes work. If you want a new pair of tennis shoes, you have to go out there and get a job. And I'm like, Dad, I'm, I'm 12 years old. And it just so happens he was playing poker with his buddies. And one of his buddies was like, well, I got a job for you. I've got these garbage bags that we distribute. You can sell them door to door. I'm like, okay. And it was when I was selling them and realizing that I liked to sell and that I could sell and that I recognized that selling was, was about providing a service and creating value for people that I knew that I, I would I literally back then, I knew that I could always succeed. Um, I mean, I remember I was 16, I think, when I, I started a stamp company and started going to, to stamp shows and trade shows and just working a little bit harder than other people and, and trading up from one stamp to the next. I remember one time I started with a quarter and bought a stamp and left with $50, thinking, hey, if I could do this, I could do anything. And, and it's not that everything worked. I failed a lot, but I never, ever felt like I, I wouldn't be able to work hard enough to succeed. I, I've always been passionate. Some people thought, you know, it's, a, it's more OCD than anything else, which I think is a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Um, when I, you know, I mentioned the stamp business, I would stay up till three, four in the morning, even though I had to get up and go to school and read Lynn stamp news and Scott stamp journals and have them all memorized and, and use that to give myself an edge. Um, even when I was in college, um, I'd be in in the library reading business books and just looking for business biographies and just reading all I could about business. Um, when I had micro solutions and, you know, I started with no money. You know, I, I pull all nighters in in front of borrowed computers, teaching myself software and and how to program. Um, it, it's just I've always just really enjoyed just the the competition of business. I think you know in in the sports business, I'll talk to to our players, <clears throat> and it'll be like. Well, you guys compete for 48 minutes and you practice a couple hours and you work on your game independently a couple hours. But the ultimate sport is business because you have to compete with everybody. And you have to do a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year forever. And there's always somebody out there trying to kick your butt. There's always somebody who looks at your business and says, I can do that better. I have a better idea. And you're, you have to compete with that person. And all the while, you have to make your customers happy, your employees happy. It, it's, it's the competitive side of me that, and any entrepreneur that I think that, that has to drive you. And, and I think that carries over into the Mavericks. I, I want to win and, and I want to compete. 
And by the way, you see this all the time. When they turn down entrepreneurs, it's often because they have this great idea, but they haven't done the work. And particularly on the sales front, they haven't gotten the sales. And what I love when Mark Cuban instructs these people, he doesn't just kick them out of the tank with no money. He gives them advice, like go out there and get sales and come back. He calls those people, by the way, entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to put in the work and the effort. By the way, his grandparents came to America with nothing but their name, Chabensky. They even lost that possession when the Russian Jewish family's name was changed at Ellis Island to a name Americans could more easily pronounce, Cuban. And by the way, his father was the son of an automobile upholsterer in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And he started thinking about being an entrepreneur when he was 12 and credits Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead for helping him formulate his philosophy of life. It was incredibly motivating to me, he told Forbes magazine. That book encouraged me to think as an individual, to take risks to reach my goals, and to take responsibility for my successes and my failures. And by the way, don't we wish that could be every kid, every American, having that philosophy of life? Would the country be better? And I think this is why we love Shark Tank. Let's listen to Damon John's story. He spent his childhood in Queens, New York, raised with seven sisters and brothers by his single mom. In high school, he worked full-time as a part of a co-op program, which he credits with stoking his entrepreneurial spirit. After his high school graduation, he started a computer van service, but it was selling hats and clothing that would make Damon John his fortune. He got together with his friends. His mom mortgaged her house, and John started his own company. He held a full-time job at the local Red Lobster while doing all of this to make ends meet, working on the clothing business between shifts. That small business, FUBU, is now an apparel empire. He has a net worth of over $300 million. He was on with Rachel Ray and his mom to talk about an experience and experiences and lessons his mom, that single mom, taught her son. Let's take a my listen. My life is a, is a series of beautiful women. It started with my mother. I have three daughters, you know, a great fiancé. So, so I'm, I'm a product of beautiful girls, women. Yeah. And, 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 and. What kind of son? What kind of son did you have here? What was he like growing up? Oh, Damon was a little mischievous, <laughs> and he was always figuring out ways he could make money. Well, he was always thinking outside the box, Legitimate ways right? he could make money. And Legitimate he... ways he could make money. That's a very important word. Man, it was that hard. <laughs> uh, plus, he was very responsible, very responsible, and always knew how to handle money. I, I love that, that in an early age, you understood the value of a dollar. I didn't have much of it. Um, That's right. So, Can't you know, we had, we had to make it stretch. And I would, I, it would be an example of my mother. My mother would show me how, to, how I would learn by her examples. We didn't have much, and I would watch her do whatever she could. Work and I love jobs. how you talk about your quality of life. You never yeah. felt suffered, even though you were not financially, uh, you know, doing super well. It never felt like that at home. You always felt special. and I always felt like special. You know, I, growing up now, knowing I was dyslexic and knowing that we were going through challenging times, but she would make me feel so loved and like there was nothing in the world that could stop whatever I was right. doing uh, as long as I listened to her. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, she sent me to a different city or a different place every single summer to widen my understanding Your of horizons, the world. Yeah. I went to Hawaii, right, uh, for one year. But think about it. She saved up for three years. It cost $100. I was on a 19 connecting flight wow. to Hawaii. <laughs> and I stayed with a friend of hers. But I went to Hawaii. And you, you got to see the world. Yeah. Do you think that's, what's 
the greatest lesson, if you, if you had to pick, what's the greatest lesson or, or motto or, or the essence of what your mom taught you? Uh, that I was always responsible for my actions. Um, yes. And she, listen, I got left back in seventh grade. The teacher said, hey, you can pass, because they knew I was acting up. My mother said, no, guarantee that he's going to be left back. Then she went and got a third job, so that a babysitter could watch me, so I <laughs> stay in the house and be punished the entire summer, because I had to be responsible for my actions. That's a tough lesson, but see how well was, it, it Was it took. harder on you, wasn't it, Ma? It was hard on me, because when you punish your child, you punish yourself. Yourself, yeah. Personal responsibility, hard work, sounds like America to me. When we come back, more on this all-American show, Shark Tank, after these messages. Our American Stories, our final segment in our hour-long celebration of Shark Tank, which is just all American entertainment. By the way, what we love is that the contestants are unapologetic about their ambitions, which is what makes Shark Tank so much fun. In an age when being wealthy merits an apology, or worse, is a social stigma, this show could even be called countercultural, because it celebrates the pursuit and the creation of wealth. A crazy idea. And by the way, what makes it addictive is that the self-made millionaires and billionaires we're profiling and sitting on that panel are no different than the contestants pitching them. Because only 10, 20, or 30 years ago, they were those very same people. They get it. Pitching their businesses to rich investors, struggling to acquire capital, struggling to acquire knowledge. And that's what's just so good about this show. Let's look at another one of the sharks. Lori Grenier. She started with one idea and turned it into a multi-million dollar international brand. She's now regarded as one of the most prolific inventors of retail products, having created over 500 and holds 120 U.S. and international patents. She is a Shark Tank three-time Emmy Award winner, and here she is talking about how she got her start. Many of you know me from Shark Tank, maybe. Some of you know me from QVC. So many of you will wonder, well, how did she get there? How did she create 500 products? How did she get 120 patents? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple. I had a great idea. I had no schooling in business. I had no entrepreneurship class or MBA. I just thought of one great idea. And then I had the passion and the drive to bring it to life. And the key words there... Well, at least for us, no MBA. She had an idea, and the word she used was drive. And it takes a lot of drive. And again, another one of our themes here on the show, Entitlement Society, you know, raising our kids with too much, taking away their drive and their curiosity, by the way. Uh, We had a terrific segment the other day and a terrific story uh, in which we had the great Wayne Gretzky talking about hockey when he was young and how they just went out on the... On the, on the ice and played. And they were curious and they messed around and there were no parents driving Wayne Gretzky around in hockey leagues all over the place. And he said he learned all the magic and everything 
just playing a lot with the friends nearby and having fun on the ice. And so a lot of these themes we come back to again and again. Let's talk about another character, and this one's a great one. Robert Hershevik, born in Croatia. He fled to communist Yugoslavia with his family when he was eight, settling in Toronto. There, the family lived in a friend's basement for 18 months. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot more of this story. You're getting a flavor for it already, aren't you? Again, all these contestants start with nothing. All of the sharks in the end started with nothing too. Let's hear Robert and his life story. I was born in Croatia, which was a communist country when I was there called Yugoslavia. We had dirt floors and hay and no running water for a long time, but it never seemed bad because I was a little kid, my grandmother, lots of family, dogs, cats, horses. You never know the situation you grow up in until you compare it to something else. Yugoslavia was a great country if you were part of the Communist Party. My dad was very anti-communist and would say all kinds of bad things about communism. And he got thrown in jail 22 times. And the last time he got thrown in, he was told, if you come back, you will never return. He packed a suitcase, grabbed my mom and me, and he crossed the border to Italy, got on a boat, and came to Canada. In Yugoslavia, my dad was such a happy guy. He was a manager and he was pretty up there. He was well respected for what he did. And then he comes to Canada and he's sweeping floors in the factory. He was never the same. I think I'm like every other kid. You never appreciate your parents um, until they're gone. And I just think how hard he worked to give me that opportunity. And I just feel such a need to justify that sacrifice. I had lots of dreams when I was growing up. I wanted to be a detective, a vet, a race car driver. I was so unfocused. My best friend went for this interview at a computer company. And I'm thinking, computers, who cares? Boring. Until he says, the starting salary is $30,000. I'm like, what? And he says, well, I didn't get the job. Here's the guy's number. Call him. That's how I got started in the computer business. The Herjavec Group is one of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. I'm really passionate about it because it feels like we do good. I really think the world is changing. The internet has a lot of good, but has a lot of potential bad. And by protecting companies, we're making the world a safer place. I think what makes me different than the other sharks is I'm an actual immigrant. I actually came here on a boat. That shapes a lot of how I think and who I am. People think today, oh, I can't get ahead. It's really hard. Yeah, damn right, it's really hard. And it should be hard. Entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. It's not about who your parents are. It's not about your color. It's not about your sex. It's not about your religion. You know, business doesn't really care. Business only cares about the value that you add. Indeed, and only cares about the value that you add. And by the way, what a story here. He was in his 20s and between jobs when a college roommate, as you just heard him talk about, told him about IBM mainframes and emulation boards. But here's what he didn't say. He was underqualified for that position, but talked his way into the role by offering to work for free for the first six months. While working for free, 
He did what Corcoran did. He waited tables at local restaurants. He ended up becoming a general manager of that computer company, left it to start his own business from the basement of his home, ended up selling his first business to AT&T for over $100 million. But he worked for free for six months at the company, and the company taught him what he needed to learn because he didn't know anything about computers, and that would be called an apprenticeship, folks. By the way, that's almost illegal right now in America. You got to go to some college and spend money. He didn't spend money. He worked for free. And then he had a part-time job. And some of this common sense stuff, I think, is going to start creeping back into this great country as we overemphasize pushing kids into college, saddling up with debt and no real skills, particularly grit, particularly just toughing it out. We're not giving them those skill sets. Last but not least, everyone's favorite character, love him or hate him. You either love him or you love to hate him. But the show is not the same without him. And that is, of course, Mr. Wonderful. How did Kevin O'Leary become Mr. Wonderful? Well, it started in, if you can believe it, Canada again. He was born in Montreal to an Irish father and a Lebanese mother. O'Leary's father died when he was young, and it was his stepfather and mother who shaped a lot of his life. His mom saved a third of each paycheck, putting the funds into a large-cap dividend-yielding stock and bond fund. Nobody knew how good of an investor she was until she died. But suffice it to say... Her son was impressed. But back when O'Leary was a kid, he seemed more into guitars than making money or building empires. All of that changed thanks to one job. I remember my very first job. It was at a place called Magoo Ice Cream Parlor in Ottawa, Canada. And it was incredibly traumatic for me. And it taught me a lesson that I've never forgotten. It ruled my life in business from that day on. It was my second day working there. And the owner had hired me to scoop ice cream. I was finishing work one day, and she said to me, get down on your knees and scrape the gum off the floor. And she looked at me like a witch. And I said, no. And she said, you're fired. Get out of my ice cream store. I didn't even know what fired meant. But within minutes, I was on my bicycle on my way home in utter shame, in shock that she had that kind of control over my life. It was stunning and powerful. I have never, ever in my life worked for someone again, ever. No one has ever had control over me, ever, and never will. I can't believe I'm so emotional. (laughs) And look what shapes our lives. Sometimes hardship or a bad experience changes everything. Here's O'Leary's stepfather, George Kenwady, and then O'Leary himself, taking us back to the start of the business that would eventually make O'Leary rich. Kevin always went when other people were afraid to tread. So he started his business from nothing. I mean, he had one product. He had two telephones in a one little small place in Toronto. By the way, even though his nickname is Mr. Wonderful, as a comment on his not quite warm and fuzzy demeanor, O'Leary is a team player. And by the way, what we love most about Shark Tank, I think, is what it teaches about capital. Because... The Sharks aren't just giving away their money. What we will see over and over again with the contestants is they want the right shark, the shark with the right knowledge. And in the end, that's what capital is. Capital is knowledge. And this is why in the end, we rarely get political on this show, and it isn't really political, but it's why socialism doesn't work. It doesn't create great knowledge pools. 
The government's on top of everything. There's no competition. There's no accidents. There's no stumbling. There's no yearning. There's no drive. There's no personal responsibility. There's no risk-taking. All the wonderful words you heard. And that's what makes Shark Tank so appealing. It's not overtly political. It's not. But in a way, it's deeply political. About individual freedom and risk-taking and personal responsibility. That's why this show is such a big hit. It's aspirational and it's inspirational and it's egalitarian too. And the star of the show is the dream, the American dream. Let's face it, and capitalism itself. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story behind why we spend so much time on Shark Tank. Well, our American Dreamers segment should give it a, uh, give it a clue. We spend a lot of time on the American dream. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. our American stories and one of our favorite things to do is bring back old stories because the great ones stand the test of time and hey if you've never heard an old story it's new to you Abbott and Costello are comedy legends but how many of us hear their material nowadays at the height of their fame in the 1940s they were among the most popular and the most highly paid entertainers in the world but Abbott was born into a showbiz family his father was an advanced man for the Ringling Brothers Circus. His mother was a bareback rider. Lou Costello became a comic after failing to break into acting. Almost by chance, Bud Abbott was working at the Casino Theater in Brooklyn, New York in 1931 when a Lou Costello was the comic on stage and Costello needed a substitute straight man. Abbott and Costello were an instant success. Abbott was tall, thin, sardonic, and insulting, even condescending, always ready to slap down Costello for some idiotic comment. Costello was the buffoon, short, fat, always the sympathetic character. They worked the burlesque and vaudeville circuit and got national exposure in 1938 on the popular radio show, The Kate Smith Hour. This led to Broadway to four, a four-movie deal with Universal, and their own national radio show. One of their early radio performances was this one called Who's On First? A skit about baseball they wrote in collaboration with comedy writer John Grant. It became one of their most famous routines and one of the most famous comedy routines in history. Let's take a listen. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, 
If you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. Well, let's see. We have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> That. Look, what I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Right? I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Name on first no, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's get <laughs> now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Will you stay on third base oh, and don't go off it? All right, I don't even know. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You don't want who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base! base. <laughs> Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield. I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. And the left fielder's name? Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. Me, this Look, look, look. You got a pitcher on a team? Sure. The pitcher's name? Tamara. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, man. Go ahead. Tamara. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll break your arm, you say. Who's on first? (laughs) I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base. (laughs) Are the catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name? Today. Today. And Tamar's pitching. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the team. <laughs> you know, I'm a catcher, too. So they tell me. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Tamar's pitching on my team, and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter bunched the ball. When he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all you have to do. Is to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. <laughs> Somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to naturally. No, you don't. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball to naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. Listen, you asked me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now, you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. Same as you. <laughs> don't change them around. Same as you. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to? I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to because. Why? 
I don't know. He's on third, and I don't give a darn. What? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. And there you have it, one of the great comic bits of all time. And what timing, folks. And that's all those years in burlesque and in vaudeville doing this many times a day. And by the way, the dozens of comedies these two guys produced provided comic relief to an entire nation steeped in the tragedy of World War II. That's when they came to rise in their fame, and the nation needed the laughs desperately. After the war, their fame declined, and they produced more low-budget ventures such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, my favorite, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. I cackled like a kid when I was a kid, and now that I still get to see it every once in a while, I still cackle. The two dissolved their partnership in 1957, and Lou Costello died of a heart attack in 1959. While Costello might be the better-remembered comedian of the pair... Costello himself believed that Abbott was the true linchpin of their success and always insisted on splitting their earnings 60-40 in Abbott's favor. Quote, Comics are a dime a dozen, he explained. Good straight men are hard to find. This is Our American Stories, Abbott and Costello's story. Who's on first story? I don't know. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and this is National Police Week. In 1962, Congress and President Kennedy declared May 15th as Peace Officers Memorial Day, and ever since, we've spent the week around that day as a time to pay special tribute to police officers who paid the ultimate price. But as we all know, it isn't just the man or woman who puts on the uniform that serves. Their families experience ups and downs with them, and there's a very special bond between all police and families of police, even if they don't share a drop of blood. Today, we'd like to tell you a little bit about Houston police officer Richard K. Martin and his family. Martin didn't start out in uniform. For several years, he was an information technology guy. But something tugged at him, and in his 40s, he decided to join the Houston PD. He was a member of the West Side Patrol Division. On May 18, 2015, Officer Richard Martin was killed in the line of duty while trying to stop a suspect during a high-speed chase. As he heard the chase approaching his position, Officer Martin left the safety of his vehicle to lay down spike strips in the road to try to slow or stop the fleeing suspect. Tragically, Martin was intentionally struck and killed by the 33-year-old suspect, who soon took his own life. Martin was described by his fellow officers as a man with high standards, the sort of man who was always there when you needed a helping hand. Borrowing a thought from Douglas MacArthur, a Houston police colleague said of Officer Martin, quote, A true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. He does not set out to be a leader, but becomes one 
by the equality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. Martin's colleague continued, Officer Richard Martin, our brother, exhibited all these characteristics. He had the courage to stand alone in the attempt to stop a dangerous criminal and made the ultimate sacrifice. At Officer Martin's funeral, many stood with him and his loved ones, with the room quiet enough to hear a pin drop. A Houston police chaplain in dress uniform introduced Martin's two children. Officer Martin's 22-year-old daughter, Cynthia, gained her composure and shared this story about her dad. There's so many people here. My dad went, my dad would think that was crazy. He hated attention on him. Thank you guys for all being here. Um, didn't really write anything down because it was too hard, so I just thought I would wing it. Um, and I was just going to share a couple of stories of my dad. Like, I remember when I was, you know, my mom told me about when I was born. I had to get the little forceps used on me, so my head was all messed up. My dad turns and looks at the doctor, and he's like, is her head going to go back to normal? <laughs> Hope it did. Uh, and I remember when Blockbuster was here, you know, and if I wanted to rent an extra movie, I used to have to do little competitions. I hated jalapenos, but he'd make me eat, like, 20 of them. Or, you know, put the salt in my hand and hold an ice cube and see, like, if he could hold it, hold it longer than me, then, you know, I couldn't get it and stuff like that. We used to always do your mama jokes to each other. I remember one time... I told him this one. Oh my gosh, I never seen him laugh so hard. <laughs> oh, and I love that picture of him because you can never get him to smile on pictures. He would just smirk. And we actually had our braces at the same time. <laughs> oh. You know, he was my Superman. I never really thought this would happen. It still seems so fake. This whole week has been unreal. Oh, I just love him so much, and I'm going to miss him. And my Aunt Karen just wanted me to say a little something. Uh, that's his baby sister, and, you know, they were real close. And every time he went to Oklahoma, he, he would always visit her and... She loves him so much, and she's going to miss him as well. Um, I guess that's all I really have to say. He was my Superman. And then the chaplain gave Cynthia a hug, and a young man walked up on the stage next, only 11 years old. This was Officer Martin's son. Here's the voice of the Houston police chaplain. This is Tyler Martin. He's a great baseball player. He wrote a letter for his dad, and he asked me, he said, Chaplain, will you mind reading the letter for me? So I'm going to read you his words today as he stands here in honor of his dad. He said this, Dad, I love you so much. I will miss you for the rest of my life. I can't wait to see you again. You were a great father. 
will all love you so much. I was not ready for this. I will really miss you. I pray for you every day. I will make good grades and I will work hard for you. I will be a good kid and adult. I will follow my dreams and play hard in the major leagues. Then I will follow in your footsteps and being a police officer. I love you for everything you have ever done for me. You were a great dad and a hero to a lot of people. You will always be remembered. We all love you and we will always remember you. You were my hero. Thanks for being there for me all the time. I can't stop thinking about you. I love you so much. Love, Tyler. And he says, I can't wait to see you again. Remember, Dad, you're my hero. And Tyler stood quietly by the podium with his head bowed during that reading. And when a few tears ran down his cheek, his sister put her hand on the back of his head and cried with him. About a year and a half after their father's funeral, Tyler, his sister Cynthia, and his dad's fellow officers met again in a very different setting. Fewer tears, just as much love. You're going to hear the voices of Tyler's mom and sister in this clip, talking about how Houston police officers showed up in force to support the young man at his first eighth grade football game. And here's more from a few of the cops and Tyler's sister and mom. of the officers just took this idea and, and they ran with it and asked everybody to be a part of it. And we're very thankful, very grateful. It's important for us to show Tyler that uh, that we are still family um, because his dad was killed, you know, a little over a year ago. Uh, we are we are standing in for his dad. Every every one of us is out here, the 5200 and HPE and the and the thousands around the area. And it's important that Tyler knows that, that he has our support. Oh, I'm sure he's probably really excited. Um, you know, he's probably just like me, just grateful that they are able to come. He does tell me that he knows that his dad is going to be on the field with him. And I think when he looks up in the stands and he sees the officers here, it's just going to remind him that, yes, his dad is on the field with him. Well, I'm here to support Tyler Martin. Uh, obviously everyone knows his father was killed uh, while chasing some suspects and so I felt like I should be here to support his son. Knowing Tyler the way I do, I think it makes him feel great. I think he uh, enjoys his HPD and his blue family uh, all over the area. Seeing the officers reminds them that their dad was a hero and what he did for this community and I don't ever want them to forget that. And I can't do that without these officers being in, in their lives. And celebrating and honoring Fallen Police, National Police Week, Houston Police Officer Richard K. Martin. And what a wonderful thing that Fallen Officers' brothers do for them and their families. And again, this is the kind of story you don't hear in the media. 
but we deliver it each and every day here on Our American Stories, the story of Houston police officer, fallen officer, Richard K. Martin. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Bleu! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines, but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. (laughs) It's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. 
<laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gurgic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many we cannot do anything. That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgic's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery and he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map, uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formeau headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? An atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create anything that have changed really the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gurgic helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France compared to here that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. 
the U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game, and that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com, and the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Bleu. Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we regularly like to go to the Wall Street Journal, and sometimes for their opinion writers, but sometimes, well, the burning question is one of our favorites, and you've heard Heidi Mitchell before talk about many interesting things, and today I think maybe one of the most interesting of all of the subjects, and this burning question this week is... Does having a baby really make it harder to concentrate? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my 
My pleasure. And by the way, we were just in a conversation just offline, and it was like, look, I, I know I wrote about something, and hold on a second, and there it is. I almost said, there's the column right there, Heidi. You are, you are having a hard time concentrating because you have three kids. You've got two away in camp and one away in another camp. And talk about your personal experience of, of this burning question before we get into the actual science of this, Heidi. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a sort of misconception that is something called mommy brain, right? It's like this fogginess that you feel like you're, you're being pulled in so many directions when you, it's not just when you have babies, it's when you have kids in general and fathers feel it too, right? You're, you know, it's hard to focus on work when something important is going on with your kid and um and i think we all feel that way but your brain's super adaptive and we've evolved for many generations and so have other animals and there's lots of evidence out there that prove that say that maybe not definitively prove but lots of evidence to show that maybe having your kids doesn't make it harder to concentrate maybe it just feels that way but it makes you better at some things yeah, you know, I once heard, it was a unique uh, little autobiography, uh, Judge Ginsburg was being interviewed, and she talked about having a child while she was in her first year at Harvard. Her husband then moved to Columbia, she went with him, and she talked about the fact that having a child actually focused her more. She had, she had to get home and take care of the child, so she had this tremendous focus in her study time because she wanted to get to that child. And she also said that, in, in a sense, it made her an adult and it took her away from the worries of the traditional law student. And it was fascinating to hear that from someone like Judge Ginsburg, who, by the way, when she was at Columbia, was one of just several women in the entire class, Heidi. The notorious RBJ. And that's RBG. right, the notorious RBG. The RBG. That's, that's right. So tell me this, uh, Heidi. Uh, what are the earliest changes to a woman's brain even before the baby is born? So, yeah, so it's important to think about be, be, the idea of becoming a parent. And this also affects men, too, and we can talk about that later. But, you know, you start to become a parent biologically and neurologically well before the child comes out of you. So um, I like to refer to it as a fetus, but as this fetus is growing inside of you, your brain structural structure is increasing. So it's sort of like... Um, the lattice work that holds it up is getting stronger and bigger. And they, certain parts of the brain show that, including the part of the brain that focuses on executive function, which is like making decisions and focus and, you know, making good choices. Um, and they see evidence of this, you know, three or four months after birth. So it's happening, you know, not until, you know, the, the fetus is a few months old, but you know, there's different hormones that are going on through your body. Of course, there's things growing inside of you, and your brain is adapting to all that. It's getting ready to not take care of just itself, but also to this other thing that's going to come out of you. And, you know, there's a, there's a talk in the column about the higher function of the brain when a mom is pregnant and then and has multiple pregnancies. You also talk about how moms are anxious and under pressure simultaneously. And how does that change their brains? So, you know, when you're, your new mothers tend to be super anxious because, you know, you're not used to taking care of yourself and this other thing, right? You have no idea what you're doing. Right. And you're always worried about your baby's health. So, so that is that idea of mommy brain could be that you're distracted because, you know, you feel like your brain doesn't have enough capacity to both think about all your child's needs and take care of your child's needs and 
take care of all of your own needs. But as the notorious RBG has shown, you know, you want to get all your work done really well the first time so that you can leave at six o'clock and get home to nurse your baby or whatever it is. So you're, so that anxiety should diminish as you realize, oh, I can do this, you know, and then there's been some evidence, not, there haven't been studies done on humans, but animal research has shown that multiple pregnancies can maybe even increase that ability to kind of juggle that idea. So not the fog, let's ignore that, but this idea of juggling and being able to do lots of things. They, there's, um, I think it was um, rodents showed that after multiple pregnancies that they had a, a better time remembering where they hid their food, and that is the main thing they need to do for their baby. Um, is to remember where to find the food, source the food and store it somewhere where no one's going to find it. Yeah. And they have shown that they, increased pregnancies has increased capacity for memory. So if we can extrapolate from that, then, well, maybe we're just, maybe we're even smarter <laughs> after we've had a baby. Well, I, I think I am, and that's what I want to segue over to the men. Let's take a listen first, Heidi, to Louis C.K. talking about <laughs> life with a baby. She woke me up all night. Just woke me up every 10 minutes. Just woke me up. Just said, Dad, with nothing. That's the worst part. Daddy! Whoa, whoa, what is it? Um, you got nothing. <laughs> so now it's the next morning. I'm making breakfast and I'm gone. I'm insane. I drank too much coffee to overcompensate. And I'm like, <laughs> I keep having these moments where it's like, <laughs> and there's nothing there. Just nothing. <laughs> uh, okay. So that could be daddy brain. Is daddy anxious too? Talk about <laughs> daddy, daddy brain. Anxious too, yeah. So, so they, the brain activity that's, that's been studied that shows that there's, it's less in fa- new fathers than in new mothers, but it is still affected, especially the part of the brain that's the parental instinct. So this idea of him going like, what, waking up and just hearing the baby go say anything? I mean, that's for real. Dad, there's chemical changes in the dad brains um, that. They are responding to being a parent, this new role. And the brain is creating these new connections all the time and getting smarter, getting better, recognizing. You know how they say that you can tell, oh, that cry means she's hungry and that cry means she's got a wet diaper. And, like, you start to kind of learn that. But that's not something you knew six months before, right? So your brain's really adaptive. Um, And also they show um, that men and women have an increase of um, oxytocin, which is, you know, a love hormone. So men have a little bit less. Women have more, especially if they breastfeed, but it's this kind of feel-good hormone. So, you know, <clears throat> even though you're, you're anxious and you're stressed out and you're juggling, you may have a little bit of euphoria because you're so in love with this new thing that you've created. And so there's, I think the positive seem to outweigh the negative in most senses. And I always say if I'm hiring somebody, oh my God, I'm probably not allowed to say this out loud, but a new parent may not be such a bad person to hire. No, They're probably like really want to get home and want to get the work done right. They don't want to lose their job. And so, you know, all of the, the stakes are much higher now. And so, you know, they might be a really good employee. You bet. And I don't, you know what I think they don't want to do? I don't think they want to waste time, Heidi. And if there's anything in an office that messes up everything, it's people who waste time because they've got no life. And so they ruin yours. Right. The other thing is, um, you know, you might feel more confident after you, like, I always felt like, in fact, I went back to work 
early, I I didn't take the full maternity leave with my first kid because I just couldn't be alone with this kid anymore. Bless his heart. But (laughs) I just needed to be around grownups. And and work was something I totally understood. Like, I got it. I get this. You people are sane. You respond (laughs) in an adult-like manner to requests. And then you go home to like this chaos of, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and like the, sheet, the laundry is not done and the breakfast is still out and all that stuff. But your brain is so adaptive. It's like plastic and it just changes and grows and, and you can be better at work. You can be less chit chatty or you can like know how to move through that water cooler conversation really fast. You can get back to the, the jobs. You can get in that car, commute back home. You bet. <laughs> you know, these, Heidi, are these mommy and daddy brain changes temporary or is there something more lasting going on here? It's, it's actually pretty lasting. I mean, that the anxiety tends to go away as you get used to, you know, you get more confident, but, but the, the structure of the brain, it's, it's actually, it's like um, scaffolding and it's, it's kind of growing and it means maybe not permanent because it can go away if you have some sort of head injury or drugs or something else like that. But you can, you, once you make these connections, these, you know, those, we're always talking about the brain's connections. You, once you make them, they're there. And so it becomes the pathway is just much faster. So where it used to take you, you know, a minute or 30 seconds to make a decision about something, it now takes you three seconds because you've done it a hundred times before. And so that's like a permanent, you know, rapid fire response. Those executive functions, those this quick decisions, emotional responses, those things are, they're just quicker. So yeah, permanent, semi-permanent, pretty permanent. Well, that's all good news for all of you who have kids and are wondering about whether having a baby really makes it harder to concentrate. I think there's an an answer there, I think, kind of, sort of, in a good way. (laughs) Heidi, thanks so much for joining us, as always. Oh, thanks for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Does having a baby really make it harder to concentrate? And it's our burning question with columnists. Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to see all of our work together. More after these messages.